0: Welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Where, where's the cost of discipleship? Wetsuits in baptism? I mean, oh well, we'll take it to this session. They'll, they'll deal with it. But uh, uh, would you turn to 2 Kings chapter 19? 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. If you get to Chronicles, go back. 2nd Kings chapter 19. I'm just going to read a couple of verses here. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, verse 1, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priests covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. They said to him, thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to push them forth. And this is the word of the Lord. There are times... And places in each of our lives when we are sorely tested, when every prop around us seems to be giving way, when every support system seems to have failed. There are seasons of life and places in our lives where the situation appears to be hopeless, where no conceivable strategy seems plausible, where every proposed solution seems unrealistic. And that's where Hezekiah is. Well, we started this four weeks ago, I was here, and we got into kind of a goofy series we're gonna have. One week at the beginning of August, one week at the end of August, and then you gotta wait two more months to the end of October. But you are so smart that this won't be a problem for you, I am sure. But uh, Hezekiah is in a mess. You say, who is Hezekiah? He is the 13th king of Judah. And when the story begins in, in 2 Kings chapter 18, uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, had, had been plundered 20 years earlier by the Assyrians. Remember, after King Solomon, the third king of Israel, the, the nation, the whole nation has a civil war. They split in half, never to come again uh, back together again. The northern kingdom is called Israel. By this point, they have been utterly destroyed by the Assyrians, now it's 20 years later, and the little tiny kingdom of Judah still survives, but Sennacherib, the king of Judah, is on the march. And he wants to destroy all of it. He wants Jerusalem for his very own possession. Now, we're going to have a lot of names here. You already heard a lot of names, but there's only two names we need to remember. Hezekiah is the king. Say, king. king. Good. Sennacherib is the bad guy. Say, bad guy. Okay, Sennacherib's the bad guy. He's he's the king of Assyria. Those are the two key players, and we're going to find that there's even a more important third player. I I would say about King Hezekiah, he is the sweet chutney. I made this up myself. He's the sweet chutney between the bitter bread of his father and his son. Now, is that poetic, don't you think? (laughs) The father of Hezekiah was King Ahaz, and he does what's evil in the eyes of the Lord. He even burns his son in a, in the fires to molech so there's a real good chance that that was his firstborn son and hezekiah comes to the throne because he doesn't get burned in the fire hezekiah's son is king manasseh and king manasseh is the most vile the most wicked of all israel's uh, all judah's kings and so much so that god says when manasseh dies i'm going to utterly destroy Uh, the kingdom of Judah. They're going to be utterly vanquished. They're going to be deported to Babylon. Uh, The the evil of, get this, the evil of Manasseh, it is said in chapter 20, surpasses even that of the Amorites. And you think, who cares? What's the deal about the Amorites? Well, let me tell you, about 1,200 years earlier, God calls one guy from Ur of the Chaldees named Abraham, He says, Abraham, I want you to follow me, and if you do, I'm going to give you a lot of kids, and I'm going to make you into a nation, and you're going to be a blessing to the earth, and I'm going to give you a land. We call that the land of Israel. That all takes place in Genesis 15. Well, God says to Abraham, he says, I'd like to give you the land right now, but the sins of the Amorites has not reached its completion. In other words, we have to wait until they sin a little bit more. Now, think about this. King Manasseh, his sins exceed the sins even of the Amorites. And so God is going to remove uh, Judah completely. But that's all in the future. Hezekiah stands between the two. He is a faithful king like David. But he still faces the Assyrians who are coming as uh, as a result of God's wrath on this little nation. The long march of the Assyrians has reached its climax. Jerusalem itself is surrounded. It is weak. It is ready for surrender. Now, church, our world, as you know, is a different world than it was at the beginning of August. I mean, we we live, I don't know if you all know this, we live in a different world. And when you guys are my age, you'll be talking about what happened in the last two weeks with what happened with Afghanistan, because the world is labyrinthine in its complexity. And, and uh, w- well, we, we wonder, as, as Americans, we wonder what's gonna happen. Is China gonna be emboldened to take Taiwan? Is Iran gonna be emboldened to actually attack Israel? Is, is Russia gonna get in bed with the Taliban? Uh, will there be another refugee crisis in Europe? The world changed in the last few weeks. So also, in the time of Hezekiah, the world was complex. You've got the Assyrians, pretty much straight up the map. Then to the east, you have the Babylonians. And to the south and the west, you have the Egyptians. And all these nations are interacting with one another. And Hezekiah is caught up in all of it. Now, a couple of weeks ago, just to review, there was a a shuttle diplomacy where Sennacherib, who's what? What is he? Bad Bad guy. Good. The bad guy, he sends three people to the wall of Jerusalem. And Hezekiah, who is... The king, or the good guy, either one, but as long as you participate, it's okay. Uh, Hezekiah is, yeah, and and he sends three people, a delegation to the wall. So there's six guys on the wall. All the people of Jerusalem are listening, and the the spokesperson for the Assyrians is a, a guy, he has a title, he's the Rabshakeh. And he uh, puts out psychological warfare on the people of Jerusalem. He says, Egypt is not going to protect you. Hezekiah has closed your churches. Uh, Even if the Assyrians gave you the horses, you wouldn't even have riders to ride them. And lastly, he says, and by the way, your God told us to come and attack you, which technically was true. Well, Hezekiah's delegation that consists of three people, Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah, they go back to Hezekiah and they present to him what they've heard. And that's where we just started in chapter 19. So are we pretty much up to speed? All right, good. Uh, Do you remember the question that was the key question in chapter 18? The Rabshakeh says to Hezekiah and to the people of Jerusalem, in whom do you trust? On what do you rest this trust of yours? That's in chapter 18, verses 19 and 20. And that's the key question. What is Hezekiah going to do? In whom is he going to place his trust? To say it again, there are times in each of our lives when we are sorely tested. When every prop around us seems to be giving way, when every support system seems to have failed, there are seasons and places in our journey where the situation appears to be hopeless. And this is one of those times for Hezekiah. He's facing the strongest military on earth. And, and the reader reaches and says, where's he going to place his trust? Lisa and I have some very good friends, new friends, but they're becoming very good friends. They moved to Santa Barbara several years ago, just about three and a half years ago. They came in healthy, excited, Uh, two kids that lived at home at the time. And in short order, the, the wife of the duo was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. Now, in case you don't know, there's only four stages. It's as bad as it gets. And about four or five months ago, the husband of the duo looked down and he saw a tumor growing inside of him. And he's got very problematic cancer. Who are you going to trust? Well, we're going to divide our chapter real quickly into uh, just a couple of sections Hezekiah's plight, P L I G H T, and Hezekiah's prayer. Hezekiah gets this word from the delegation, and then if you look at verse 4 in chapter 19, he says it may be, they, they, they send a delegation to Isaiah, it may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, Isaiah... Lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Hezekiah is the king. Isaiah is the prophet. Hezekiah says, would you please pray for this nation? Now, what happens is intriguing. Isaiah doesn't pray. He prophesies. And he says, thus says the Lord. I will be with you. Don't be afraid. Sennacherib has reviled me, God says. Sennacherib will hear a rumor. And Sennacherib will go home to Nineveh, and he will die there by the sword. Now you think about the audacity of this prophecy. It's very specific. The, the the bad guy, Sennacherib, is gonna hear a rumor. He's gonna flee home to his own country, and there he will be killed by the sword. And you know, that's exactly what happened. Sennacherib goes to find his uh, military, they've left one town, they've gone to another town, and when he gets there, he hears a rumor that the Ethiopians, called Cush in Bible times, the Ethiopians are attacking his capital city, so he rushes back with some soldiers. He never returns to Judah. 20 years later, he's in one of his own temples, and his own sons kill him with a sword. So Isaiah's prophecy comes true Exactly as he said it. Now, four weeks ago, I, I said something along the lines that when, if we're going to make it in the Christian life, we need to have Hezekiah-like faith because he's, he's the king with a lot of faith. And, and I said, we need to have Hezekiah-like faith. Somebody from one of the services, I don't even remember, said, well, what is Hezekiah-like faith? Hezekiah-like faith is faith that trusts God against all the odds. Faith that trusts God when you're in the lion's den. Faith that trusts God when your marriage is far from a happy one. Faith that trusts God when the years are going by and you're not finding a spouse. My son-in-law is a pastor, and he was, uh, he's from Camarillo, and he uh, was at a uh, pastor's conference this week in Big Bear. There were about a hundred pastors there. And one of the younger pastors stood up and asked the group to pray for his parents. Because his parents, 15 years ago, went to become missionaries in Afghanistan. And they learned the language and they planted a church and they're caring for these people that they love and they made the decision this last week to stay. And their expectation is that they will die, that they will die at the hands of the Taliban. They're in hiding right now. I'm not supposed to give you their name, and I won't. You might want to pray for them, but that is Hezekiah-like faith. When you go, give your lives and stay when it would be possible to leave Hezekiah-like faith is faith in the midst of the storm. And that's what we're reading about in this chapter. Hezekiah sends this desperate plea to Isaiah, and Isaiah makes a prophecy, and the prophecy comes true. Now watch this, right before Sennacherib goes back to Assyria, remember he's gonna go back to fight the Ethiopians up there. Look at verse nine, uh, Sennacherib sent a message again to Hezekiah saying, thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. This is a direct assault on Yahweh, on God. And Sennacherib, the bad guy, says to the king, who's the good guy, he says, don't you trust in your God. By the way, Sennacherib backs up his warning with his own reputation. He says, you know what? We always win. Look at verse 11. Behold, he's going to give uh, Hezekiah a little bit of his record. You you have heard of the king of Assyria, what he's done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Verse 12. Have the gods of the nations delivered Reziph and the peoples of Eden who were in uh, Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Shaparvium? the king of Hena, the king of Iva? They're all dead, is what he's saying. Sennacherib, off the tip of his tongue, rolls out kings and kingdoms that have fallen at the hands of the Assyrians. And he says, we always win. Do you think your God will deliver you? I like what Philip Ryken says in his commentary on 2 Kings. He says, it is hard to imagine a message better designed to challenge Hezekiah's faith and to pray, P-R-E-Y, on his darkest fears, like the serpent in the garden, Sennacherib directly challenges God's word. And by the way, that's at the heart of every sin where God's word is challenged. In effect, Sennacherib was calling God a liar. Did any of their gods save them? Well, the answer is no. Well, surely your God won't save you. Well, desperate times call for desperate measures and the measure that Hezekiah takes is that of prayer. This comes up in verses 14 through 20. Hezekiah's prayer, I I just want us to look at three components of his prayer. Number one, it is a helpless prayer. Would you look at verse 14? Hezekiah received, the, this is really fun, he received the letter from the hand of the messengers and he read it and Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. He just takes the letter and he, and he puts it in the temple and he says, you see it, Lord? You know, I think a lot of times when we have troubles, we, we try to figure out the whole solution and then we bring that to God and we say, would you do that, Lord? You know, we got it all figured out, just do it, Lord. Hezekiah just shows him the letter. We're in trouble. It is a helpless, desperate prayer. Corey Ten Boom was a Dutch follower of Christ during World War II, and she and her family uh, harbored Jews that were fleeing from their, for their lives from the, the Nazis. And it cost the whole Ten Boom family their lives, except for Corey. They went to prison camp and I think they all died, except for Corey. But she was known during this time when they were sheltering Jews to open her Bible and and hold it up before God and say, this is what it says. Now, do it. That was the way she prayed. She just held it up before God. A desperate, helpless prayer. You have a prayer book in your lap that you don't know about. It's called the Book of Psalms. 150 Holy Spirit-inspired, well-crafted prayers. And many, many, many of them are simply prayers of desperation. How long will you turn your face from me? How long will my enemies triumph over me? So years ago, the church I pastored, Santa Barbara Community Church, we had a little seven-year-old girl. She's now older, and I still know her, but she wrote a psalm. I'm going to read it to you. It's the psalm of a seven year old, but it sounds a lot like what Hezekiah is doing. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Oh, I love you, Jesus. Notice the thrice repetition for emphasis. You're my God, me and you together. I love you. You love me. Jesus, what are you doing? Helpless. What are you doing? Ole Hallisby, the Norwegian pastor, said in his book on prayer, helplessness becomes prayer the moment that you go to Jesus and speak candidly and confidently about him and your needs. Second, Hezekiah's prayer is God-centered Hezekiah doesn't spend much time in the problem. Look at verse 15. He goes right on to talk about God. Oh, Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God of Israel. You alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. In his prayer, he extols God and what he has done. He talks about the fact that God is vast, he is near, he is mighty, he is accessible, he is able. He just tells God the truth about himself. And the third part of his prayer, it is glory directed. Now, when the prayer is prayed, the Assyrians are mocking Yahweh, and Hezekiah reminds Yahweh God of that. Look at verse 16. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib the bad guy, which he has sent to mock you. Now, when the bad guy's just outside your fortress, it's easy to keep your attention fixed. Take care of this, Lord. But notice what Hezekiah does. Look down to verse 19. Hezekiah says, you know, God, your reputation is at stake. If you save us, verse 19, look at what it says. All the kingdoms of the earth will know that you are Yahweh, God alone. Your reputation is at stake. If you let us go the way the other nations went, the people will mock you. Deliver us so that the nations may know that you alone are God. The great prayers of the Bible and the great prayers of the Bible ultimately point to God and to God's glory. And you can find that, again, almost in any one of the 150 Psalms. Now, I know not much about you all, but I know a little bit because I've been hanging around here on and off for about three years. And I know, and just by virtue of the fact that we both live in a Genesis 3 fallen world, I know that, that there are troubles in our lives. There are people in this church who are worried about their body or their job or their kids or their marriage or their depression or their country, or the unreconciled relationships that are causing you to lose sleep. And I would encourage you, pray Hezekiah-like prayers. Helpless prayers, God-centered prayers, glory-directed prayers. Show God the letter. God, will you look at this? You're God, I am not. Deliver me for the sake of your glory. You know, you can live the Christian life without prayer. I know, because I've done it many, many seasons of life. But the Christian life without prayer, I would say, results in dull discipleship. It's Yeah, you can do it for a while, but it will be dull discipleship. And while we're at it, a church can do church without prayer, and what you get is church. Don't we want more than that? Well, how does the story end? Look Down to verse 20. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, your prayer to me about Sennacherib, of his, king of Assyria, I have heard. Now I'm intrigued with this. Hezekiah comes in prayer, and he opens up the, the letter, and he and he basically says, "Save your reputation." And God says, "I've heard it." Now, what's intriguing about that? On the one hand, we know in the Bible that God has, he's sovereign, his providence always works, he has a plan, and that plan always comes to fruition. On the other hand, the same God has ordained that our prayers will actually shape history. And here is an example where God sent the king of Assyria to destroy Judah and God hears the prayers and the king of Assyria does not destroy Judah. In fact, in verse 32, Isaiah promises that not even a single arrow will be shot at Jerusalem. And then God does something miraculous. He sends an angel and 185,000 Assyrian soldiers die at the hand of God. We don't know where this took place. I mean, I like to picture it right outside the walls of Jerusalem. The text doesn't actually say that. We don't know how it happened. I mean, Herodotus and uh, uh, Josephus both said that the Assyrian armies were plagued with mice, which could refer to bubonic plague, perhaps. We don't know how it happened, but it's definitely miraculous. And God hears and sees Hezekiah and fixes the problem. Now, here's the dangerous thing about my sermon today is you might be thinking, well, he did it for Hezekiah, he'll do it for me. And, and yeah, sometimes when we're in a desperate strait, we pray and God does a miracle. Sometimes. But sometimes God calls us to sit with the Assyrians outside the, the gates and, and he just says, I want you to stay there. And sometimes we're called to suffer. The point of the passage is that God is God. God. The point of the story is that Yahweh is more powerful than all the gods, and our prayers somehow, to some extent, shape history. God is God, we are not, and somehow we are called to interact with that in prayer. The point of the story, again, Yahweh is more powerful than all the gods, even your gods that you hide in your heart. Against all odds, Yahweh delivers his people when everything looks lost and hopeless. When there's no way out, Yahweh delivers. Yahweh is more powerful than all the gods. He can be trusted even in the darkest hour, even in the most hopeless predicament, even in the deepest despair, we can trust him. So pray. And we, as as his covenant people, we are invited to bring to him the Assyrians that are outside the gates, our concern for what college we're gonna go to, our concern for our children, for our cancer, for our church, for our country. The main point, again, all of it comes down to this. We are invited, commanded, in fact, to be people who trust and pray. Now, we could finish right there and we'd miss the greater point of the story. Give me three minutes, and we'll be done. This story of Hezekiah the king and Sennacherib the the bad guy, it is part of a larger story called the story of the Bible. Maybe some of us thought, boy, 185,000 soldiers killed by an angel, that sounds a little bit harsh. It's not doesn't comport with our modern sensibilities. Listen, church. In the Bible, we learn that we have all rebelled against God and that every one of us deserves nothing but death. The wages of sin is death. It's always death. In the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And every day of life that we have is a, is a gift of God's mercy to everyone. We deserve nothing. And the Assyrians only receive what you and I deserve. This story about Hezekiah's prayer is part of a larger story that has as its climax the prayer of another desperate man. Jesus spreads out his hands in a similar way to Hezekiah, and he says on a cross, Father, do you see this? Do you see what's going on here? Hezekiah placed his faith in God himself. Jesus, in his darkest hour of all history, places his faith in the Father. And do you remember the last prayer that Jesus prayed? On the cross, Luke tells us that he gave up His spirit. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then Luke says, and he breathed his last and died. Wow. This whole story about Hezekiah points us to a greater story that is yet to come when God Himself sends not an angel to destroy, but sends His own Son to die. And that Son, in dying, gives us life. In his mercy, Jesus dies the death that we all deserve to die to give us the life that none of us did anything to receive. God produces not death, but life through the death of his son. And hear this. Before we pray any other prayer, we need to pray the prayer of Jesus. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. When we pray that, we've come to know Christ. We've been born again. That we, we, we come and say, I need you to take from me, me. I need you to take my sins. I need you to take the gunk of my life, and I'm gonna trust in you and not in myself. When you're ready to do that, when you're ready to say to Jesus himself, into your hands, I commit my spirit, then you're ready to become a Christian. And I wonder if everyone in this room has prayed that prayer because that's the first prayer we must pray. Amen? So Lord, uh, into your hands we commit our spirit. We ask you to teach us to trust as Hezekiah trusted, to pray as Hezekiah prayed, but more important that we would commit ourselves wholeheartedly to you.